morning. God, do with, do with us what you want. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. It's a true privilege to be here. I think that I'm preaching possibly in part because Dave is in mourning. Uh, And for those of you who don't know, he's in mourning because on Monday a rather unfortunate event happened. That is if you're Dave Talley. So uh, now I'll probably never be back again, but that's okay. Bear with me for just a minute and let me just say a few things about myself. And I, and I do that by way of thinking about and remarking on God's providence and his strange ways of leading. Because 17 years ago, I left what was then Whittier Hills Baptist Church to go off to school. That was after I finished high school. The high school that I left from was this one. So... If you had told me 17 years ago that I'd be back on a Sunday morning with the privilege of preaching in Sonora's lower commons to the people that I grew up with and have been shaped by, I would have been uh, more than a little surprised. So God moves in strange ways and mysterious ways, and he does it for his glory and our joy. And we get to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. This morning, we're going to come to the last third of what I'm calling Jesus crowd encounter. We saw it begin in Luke chapter 12 verse 1 and it's an extended back and forth between Jesus, his disciples, and a crowd of people. And now here in uh, chapter 12, and we're going to read it in a minute, but here in chapter 12 verses 49 through the end of the chapter and in the first nine verses of chapter 13, Jesus brings it all to a close. And he does that right before we move into chapter 13 verse 10 when the scene is going to shift and Jesus and his disciples continue on their way to Jerusalem. In your handout, you'll see that we're supposedly going through chapter 13, verse 17. And we were initially, uh, but I managed to convince Mike, Mike Thigpen, who's going to be here next week, that maybe he should take the seven verses that come after chapter 13, verse 10. So we're going to stop at 13, verse 9 this morning. And, and that's actually kind of where the text breaks, so it's a good place to stop. In order to sort of keep us clear in our minds about what's going on in this this crowd encounter that Jesus has, let me just review where we've been in chapter 12 thus far. So grab your Bible, open it up, because you want to maybe just kind of page through this uh, as I review. Let me suggest that this crowd encounter, we can kind of think of it in about five distinct portions. The first portion is Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. That's sort of the thesis statement, if you will, the main point of everything that Jesus is saying in this encounter. And if I were to sum it up in one very short phrase, it would be this, fear God. And the remainder of chapter 12 and the first nine verses of chapter 13 unfold that theme in a variety of different ways. The second portion of this crowd encounter, it picks up in verse 8 and runs through verse 12. And if I was going to sum that one up, it would be something like, fear God and confess Christ. And then the third portion is verses 13 through 33. And we might sum it up as, fear God and trust him, especially as you steward his resources. Dave addressed these first three portions on November 20th, so way back last year. And his title, his sermon title was A Heart That Belongs to Christ. And the main point was, 
A heart that is genuine is a heart that pursues the kingdom. And then we pick up with the fourth portion. That's verses 35 uh, through 48 of chapter 12. And the point would be fear God and be ready by waiting with faithful service. And, And Dave preached on that last week with his sermon title, Are You Ready? Be prepared for Jesus' coming and be faithful in serving him. And now this morning, we come to the fifth portion. That's the balance of chapter 12 and the first nine verses of chapter 13, like I said. And let me, let me point out to you as we do that you can look at this passage and it breaks down pretty clearly into about three more distinct sections. I'm going to call them three movements this morning. And we'll be moving through each movement. Moving through each movement. We'll be stepping through each movement. The first movement is Jesus' initial statement. It's verses 49 to 53. The second movement is when he turns and he addresses the crowd in verses 54 to 59. And then the third movement is both the crowd's response to Jesus and then Jesus' rebuttal to their response. So this morning, again, we have the privilege of looking at each of these. And to that end, let me take just a couple minutes here and I'm going to read through our passage in its entirety. And then I will pray for our time and then we'll be off and running. So if you will, Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 49. I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And he was also saying to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, a shower is coming. And so it turns out. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say, it will be a hot day. And it turns out that way. You hypocrites. You know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why do you not analyze this present time? And why do you not even, on your own initiative, judge what is right? For while you are going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate, on your way there, make an effort to settle with him, so that he may not drag you before the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I say to you, you will not get out of there until you have paid the very last cent. Now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless the time. 
Heavenly Father, we come to you now in Jesus' name, and we do it acknowledging, uh, Lord, I certainly acknowledge that I'm a weak, sinful human being who needs to be humbled before the presence of your majesty so that I can actually hear what your word has to say, and I need it even now. And Lord, I trust that, that those that are here with me this morning are in a very similar state. Thank you that we have your word, Holy Spirit. Thank you that you're delighted to move in times like this, so we ask that you would. However you want to work, Lord, the time is yours. Amen. Okay, as I just noted, verses 49 to 53, they form the, the first movement, again, if you will, of this closing portion to the encounter between Jesus, his disciples, and the crowd. And notice that in these first couple verses, we learn three things here. Jesus has come to cast fire on the earth, and he wishes that it were already kindled. Jesus has a baptism with which to be baptized, and he's distressed until it's accomplished. And then Jesus comes not to bring peace between people, but division. So let's take each of those in their turn. First, what does Jesus mean when he says, I've come to cast fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled? The language that he's using here is clearly judgment language. It draws, I think, from Old Testament passages sort of like these, just for sample. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 22, God speaking, For a fire is kindled in my anger and burns to the lowest part of Sheol and consumes the earth with its yield and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. Or Joel chapter 2, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. Or Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 18, Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of God's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy. For he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. So the Old Testament picture of fire that is cast down onto the earth, it's a picture of judgment. It's a picture of God's final, complete, and total judgment on sin. But notice here in our passage, Jesus says that there's something else that must go along with the unleashing of judgment, and it's baptism. It's a baptism that in a sense precedes or empowers maybe the fire of divine judgment. These two things are coming in conjunction. Behind the word baptism, I think we need to read the word cross. Remember at this point in his ministry, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, He's headed that direction for a very specific purpose. We read in the Gospels that he has set his face, meaning he has decisively turned to go to Jerusalem. Back in Luke chapter 9, verse 22, he said this to his disciples, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. If we go to passages like Mark chapter 10, we're primed to think about the cross as a baptism. In that chapter, Jesus likens what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem, namely his death at the hand of the Jewish leaders and the Gentiles. He likens it to the drinking of a cup or a baptism. Both those pictures are there. So what's the cup that Jesus drank at the cross? Well, it's the same cup that Revelation 14 describes in this language. The wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. That's what Jesus is going to the cross to drink. What's the baptism that he's going to experience at the cross? It's being plunged into and under the full measure of God's wrath. God's wrath for sin 
his unquenchable and holy righteous wrath for sin. So the fire of God's judgment here that we read about in verse 49, it's going to come concurrent with the baptism of wrath that Jesus himself is going to suffer at the cross. Jesus, the sinless son of God, is going to become the first subject, if you will, of God's own wrath. The cross is the beginning of judgment. Now that leaves us with a rather pressing question, and it's a why question. Why does the fire of God's judgment begin at the cross? Why is Jesus, the sinless son of God, why is he the first recipient of this? And he's the recipient of a judgment for sin in which he never shared. Well, notice what Jesus says in these next verses. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. Jesus comes to ignite a fire of judgment that begins with himself, and it's out of that burning that he grants, that's an important word we'll come back to, he grants deep division to human society. Now that may sound a little bit counterintuitive at first, and it's supposed to, it's meant to. Because Jesus is the Son of Man. He's the Messiah. He's God's anointed and promised one. And in the Jewish mind, the coming of the Messiah would bring reunification and restoration of Israel. And certainly, if we were to talk through the whole scope of Scripture, that's part of Jesus' work as Messiah. And it's a work that's unfolding even now. But here, Jesus means to correct the popular understanding of who the Messiah is and what he's going to do. You see, the Messiah's ministry, the cross-ignited fire of judgment, it's going to have another effect before it ever leads to peace between peoples. First, it's going to lead to division that cuts to the very heart of who we are personally and who we are in society. Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. What is it that's going to define those fault lines? Who's, who's, what's going to define who's on which side of what? Well, it's each individual's response to Jesus and his word. Later in Luke's gospel, Jesus is going to say to his followers, and this is from Luke chapter 21, but you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all because of my name. So the dividing line that separates one person from another, even in the most intimate of relationships, the closest ones you can get, the dividing line that separates is each individual's response to Jesus. Reaching back to Dave's sermon last week, the servant who is faithful will be on one side, the servant who is lazy and abusive will be on the other. We might ask, what's the effect then of being on one side or the other? So what if someone's response to Jesus is different than mine or different than me? Who cares? Aren't they just a Jesus freak or maybe kind of a religious nut, something like that? But wait, because remember that Jesus says in Luke 9, uh, 9, verse 24, he says, "For For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Or in John 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Or Paul's very succinct statement in Romans chapter 6, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the effect, the difference between following Jesus and not following Jesus is a difference between life and death. 
At the cross, Jesus drank the full measure of God's wrath that would otherwise have landed justly on the shoulders of his disciples. Those who follow Christ are those who are already experiencing life eternal, and those who reject him are dead men just waiting to die. The fire of divine judgment, it begins with Jesus at the cross, because it is in Jesus that God saves for himself, for his glory, a people for eternal life. So division may sound tragic, and it's often painful, but really, it's truly a cause for great joy. It's the process of God calling out for himself a people who are known by his name, a people prepared for salvation, a people wrapped in the sovereign love of God. Notice here that that painful and contentious as this division is and will be for these disciples, it's costly to follow Jesus, as painful as it is, This division is granted or given by Christ. Division is not the unfortunate byproduct of some otherwise necessary reality. Division for the name of Jesus is a gracious gift of God. It's God's work to save his elect. The starting point of every human being who's ever born, you and I included, is, as it were, in hell. Apart from Christ, we are condemned to perish for eternity under the baptizing wrath of God. But God is not content to leave his people there. Rather, in Christ, he creates division. He reaches down, he claims his own, he sets them apart, and he makes them no longer subject to the cup of his anger. Brothers and sisters, that's grace. That's what's pictured here. At this point, we need, to, we need to observe for just a couple of moment, moments that the two emotions that Jesus describes as he contemplates this work of judgment and cross. Notice that he wishes or he desires that the fire of judgment was already kindled. And then notice that he's distressed until the baptism of the cross is accomplished. There's a lot that we could say about those two and, and even those conflicting emotions But let me just highlight two things. First, I think that we're prone to underrate Jesus' statement about God's divine judgment when he says, I wish it were already kindled. Yes, Jesus is eager here for the work of salvation. He's eager to accomplish the redemption of the people that are given to him by his heavenly father. That's why he's going to Jerusalem. He's got the cross in mind and he's eager for it to come. He's eager for it to be done, for the work to be done. But let's not miss that by igniting the fire of God's judgment at the cross, Jesus is also beginning the last steps that will lead to the final condemnation of those who disobey Christ. And Jesus also desires that work. Punishing sin glorifies God, and Jesus is passionately eager for the glory of God. So the picture here is one of Jesus desiring not only salvation of those that God has marked as his own, but also desiring the vindication of God's glory in God's righteous judgment poured out on sin. Where do we get that from the scripture? Where do we see a picture of Jesus as an eager judge, if you will? Well, maybe from Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 and 11. 
If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he, will all, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. So here's Jesus the lamb. He's sitting in glory, attendant over the torment of his enemies. Or maybe again in Revelation 19. Where John says, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. He's clothed with a robe that's dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Here, Jesus is the victorious or conquering king who rides to vindicate the glory of God. Certainly, God doesn't take pleasure in the death of sinners in the way that we might think of pleasure. But that doesn't preclude his righteous desire for their final judgment. So when Jesus here thinks of kindling God's judging fire, I think what's in his mind, again, is certainly the cross and then it's beyond the cross to the end. When God's glory is once and for all vindicated before all people for all time. Second, let's not miss the taste that we have here of how costly the cross will be to Jesus. Of how much the Godhead is going to suffer with the death of God the Son. Jesus says of the approaching cross, how distressed I am until it's accomplished. The the word I think carries an image of being pressed, of hard pressed, of being up against something. If Jesus truly lived as the actual human man that we proclaim him to be, and he did, and if the cross was everything that we say it is, which it is, it's the unrestrained outpouring of God's wrath, if all that is true, then shouldn't Jesus shudder at the prospect of enduring that sort of death? We really shouldn't be surprised on one hand to find him in the Garden of Gethsemane with a soul that's deeply grieved to the point of death, praying to his father, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. On the other hand, then, we should be flabbergasted to hear him follow that plea with an even deeper request, yet not as I will, but as you will. If Jesus had trounced lightly up to the cross, if he had walked to it like it was no big deal, we might be justified in being skeptical about what actually happened on that tree. But he didn't. As Jesus preaches to the crowd, he looks forward with some understanding of what's to come, and he shudders over the burden that soon will be his to bear alone. It's no wonder that as he hangs there with nails through his hands and his feet, bereft of his father's loving, sustaining presence, he thinks to Psalm 22, perhaps maybe remembering these words, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. 
So then in just this first movement, just these first couple verses, we learn about three things. We learn about divine judgment. We learn about a cross-shaped baptism. And we learn about Christ-driven division between people. Now here's the real kicker. Isn't this just the gospel? Not just. Isn't it surely the gospel? In these five verses, we see judgment for sin, we see the cross of Christ, and we, separation, we see separation between God's people and between those who stand in rebellion against him. As Jesus comes to the end of the crowd encounter, his summary of everything that he said so far is the same gospel that we preach today, that we believe today, the gospel that was handed down to us by the early church and then by two plus millennia of faithful believers. Our crowd encounter, it opened in chapter 12, verses 1 through 7, with the thesis statement that I summarized as fear God. Now Jesus sums that all up, and we see that it's expanded to the good news of Christianity, fear God in Christ. Now before we press on to the second and third movements, let's, let's think for just a second about what we might take from this. And above all else, let's realize that right here in these five verses, we have the opportunity to hear the Lord of heaven and earth himself preach the gospel to us. Think of it. This is the creator. This is God in human person, our judge and our savior. And here he speaks the good news of judgment, salvation, and separation for him. And the question is, how do we respond to that message? Are we going to turn a deaf ear, or will we allow that truth to penetrate our souls? The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So whether you're hearing this this morning for the first time or the 10,000th time, let the gospel pierce your heart. Let it lay you bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. If you stand outside of Christ, if he's not your king, if you're not following him, let let me just give you a, a fairly sobering thought. Jesus said, I have come to cast fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. And we've already noted that that phrase encompasses everything, the cross all the way to the end of God's final judgment. That means that in one sense, I don't want to overstate this, but I do want to make it plain. In one sense, Jesus is ready, waiting, and willing to pour out on you God's righteous judgment for your sin if you are disobedient to him. That's chilling. It ought to be chilling. It ought to drive, drive us if we stand apart from Jesus to our knees in fear, crying out to God for a solution, and then reaching to him in his word because we're going to get now to movements two and three and we're going to hear the solution. So if that's you this morning, keep listening. And then perhaps the last thing to take from this first movement is when we preach the gospel, when we stand before men and confess the name of Christ, as we read about in chapter 12, verses 8 through 12, let's preach it like Jesus did. Notice that he didn't shy away from God's judgment. That's a part of his gospel message. The doctrine of hell is not unloving. Let's not refrain from the loving work of showing others the glory of God even including, especially maybe in one sense, including through the judgment of God. Of course, we shouldn't end there, but let's not miss that hell, God's judgment, is intrinsic to the good news of the gospel. 
Jesus will one day sit in satisfied glory as the presiding judge over the eternal fire of hell. And that needs to be part of our picture of Christ. Okay. Now, for the sake of time, I'm going to move a little bit faster through, through the second portions, second and third portions, movements two and three, because they're essentially two different ways of saying the same thing. Movements two and three are Jesus' call for a response from the crowd after his gospel presentation. There's three verses that sort of make that plain. Uh, the, first, the first point comes in uh, chapter 12, verse 58, when he says, For while you are going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate, on your way there, make an effort to settle with him. And in the second and third verses that make this plain are in chapter 13, verses 3 and verse 5. And it's it's the same statement repeated twice. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So the response that Jesus is calling for is make an effort to settle and repent. Let's look real quickly at how these unfold in these two movements. First movement two, I said it's chapter 12, verses 54 to 59. And Jesus turns now and he directly addresses the crowd. And he begins by calling them out for their hypocrisy. These are people with enough comprehension of truth, enough comprehension of reality of the world around them that they can look, they can see the weather, and they can make an accurate prediction. But despite that, they lack the ability to understand the times the moment in which they live, namely the moment in which the Messiah for whom they are supposedly waiting is standing right before them, God is man, and bidding them to come and follow him. These people are culpable for their ignorance. Their ability to understand the world with such accuracy suggests, it argues, that they ought to be able to understand the times in which they live with the same degree of accuracy. They ought to be able to look and see Jesus and know who he is and respond by faith. But they don't. They reject him. They don't run to him as the one who can save them from sin and judgment. You see, their problem isn't ability, it's an unwilling heart. The problem is a sinful disregard for God's word. The problem is what Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 1 verse 18 when he he talks about people who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. It's their unwilling hearts expressed through their culpable hypocrisy that then leads Jesus to paint for this crowd a picture of where they stand. And it's a really bleak, doomful picture. These people are like criminals on their way to stand before a judge with their accuser. If they don't settle the issue with him, namely with their accuser, on the way, they're going to find themselves in the middle of a judicial process that's going to land them in prison. With more time, we might unpack this a little bit further, and we we might discover that the standard here is Christ. That Christ is both the judge and the accuser. That the standard that he's going to judge against, the legal standard he's going to judge against is his word. We might also find that this crowd, their culpable hypocrisy, it's an infinite crime against an infinite God. Therefore, the prison sentence, namely hell, is also infinite. They're never going to be able to get out. They're never going to pay that very last cent, if you will. But the bright point is that amidst all this bleakness, there's a ray of light. Because Jesus says, make an effort to settle with your opponent. There's hope. On the way, before they ever get to the seat of judgment, this problem can be resolved. 
Of course, the time in which they have to seek a resolution is not indefinite. It only takes so long to walk from here to the judge's chambers. And so the message is this. Right now, at this very moment, do business with your accuser so that the two of you need never stand before the judge, at least not in a condemning sense. So in movement two, after giving them the gospel, Jesus looks to the crowd and he tells them that they are people facing judgment who need to make peace with their accuser. And then finally, as we step into movement three, and like I said, it runs for the first nine verses of chapter 13. Notice now, what's the crowd's response to this? What's their response to Jesus? If I paraphrase it, maybe reading between the lines a little bit, it goes something like this. Hey, Jesus. Yeah, we got what you said, but hey, what about those Galileans whom Pilate had killed on the temple grounds? That's their question. The subtext, I think, of what they're saying is a little bit more involved. It might be running something like this. Hey, Jesus, you know what? We hear your point, but we aren't really that concerned for ourselves. After all, we're doing just fine. Life is good. Things seem blessed. There's really no worries here. But hey, what about those Galileans? Surely the people of the sort you're talking about, the people who are going to face a judge in the way that you talk about, they must have been people like that. Those Galileans must have been. Because after all, God allowed them to be slaughtered in the temple itself. Man, they must have been huge sinners. But not us. We're okay. We're doing just fine. These people have just been hit with the gospel. The crowd has just been hit with the gospel, a gospel of judgment, salvation, and separation as the people of God. And what do they do? They push it away. They point the finger at someone else. They're probably here being even intentionally offensive to Jesus. Because remember, he's a Galilean. And so are many of the disciples that are walking with him. So their subtext might even be a little bit harsher. It might be something like, hey, you religiously backward hillbilly from the sticks. Who are you to tell us about law courts and judgment? After all, we live a little bit closer to Jerusalem. We're more in touch with the things that are going on there. Man, we really know what's going on. So how does Jesus answer them? He makes two points. Everyone is a sinner, so repent. His response might go something like this. You know, do you think those Galileans were any worse in terms, of, in terms of their sin than every single other Galilean? No. And you know what? You're in the same boat. So repent or perish. Or do you think that those sophisticated Jerusalemites, whom you forgot to mention, the ones who the tower fell on all of a sudden down in Siloam, it's a portion of the city, do you think that they were any worse than every other person in Jerusalem, all of whom are sinners? No, so repent or you too will perish. Jesus' point here is very clear. It's the same point that Paul again picks up in Romans later on. Everyone falls under the category of sinner and everyone faces ultimate death as a result, of course excluding Christ. And yet, just as for the one who's marching to a judge, there's hope for resolution so also for these perishing sinners, there's hope for life. And it's bound up in one word, repent. After saying this, now Jesus makes his second point. So his first point was, repent. Everyone's a sinner, repent. And now he makes his second point. Time is short and the moment is now. He's repeating what he just said to them. And he does it by telling this parable about a fig tree. 
The owner of the tree was patient. He was enduring and long-suffering. But the fruitlessness of the tree provokes his righteous anger. A A legitimate tree, after all, is supposed to bear fruit. That's what it's for. And so he comes... And it's time for judgment. But even now, even when it would be fitting to uproot the tree and cast it away and burn it as refuse, even now there's still hope. There's hope that the fertilizing work of the vinekeeper will bring forth life. Again, the time isn't long. There's only a year yet in which the owner is going to forestall and then the end will come, either for fruitfulness or for judgment. Jesus means for his hearers, for this crowd, to see themselves in this parable of the fig tree. They stand on the brink of judgment. Indeed, the Messiah, the one who said he came to cast fire on the earth, he's speaking directly to them. They're fruitless and empty. They're rejecting him now, and they're going to do it decisively in Jerusalem in a short period of time. But even now, the moment of salvation, it still remains. Even now, God will still work among them. Even now, the gospel will come to fertilize their lifeless hearts. And the question is, will they respond? Will they repent? That then brings us to the end of these last two movements and to the conclusion of this whole crowd encounter that started way back in chapter 12, verse 1. Just as we did with the first movement, now let's ask for these uh, second and third movements, what do we do with this? What does the Spirit have for us to hear? Well, first consider that in our sin, we're prone to willful hypocrisy that suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. And it's a good thing to know because it ought to make us cautious. Apart from God's word speaking truth to us, apart from the Holy Spirit at work to transform our lives, we'll look at the world around us, we'll think we have everything under control, and we'll totally miss the point. Today, not only can we predict the weather, we can look out at our cosmos around us and we can understand it with remarkable accuracy. Just last year, we measured for the first time invisible gravitational waves moving through space. If you're a geek, I'm I'm maybe a pseudo-geek. If you're a geek, you, you might have seen that in the news and noted it. And it tells us that Albert Einstein's theory about the complexity and tangibility of our universe is probably correct in many respects. Or we can look into the human body, down to the very DNA, the the, the stuff that encodes who we are, and we can discover disabilities, genes for disabilities. We can look into the womb and see things already unfolding that need to be fixed. We can do all of that, and yet our general conclusion as a people often is, God? What God? Who's he? What response to, what, what, what difference does he make in my life? If the Jewish listeners of Jesus' day were hypocritical, how much more are we? Now, I realize that Jesus' word here, it it goes to those who are apart from him. And certainly, if you're here and you're a believer today and you're in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. You have a counselor who works against uh, yours and my, our fleshly tendency towards hypocrisy. But we also know that to the degree to which we indulge our old man our sinful self, uh, the, the, the residue of sin that still remains, to the degree that we indulge that, to that same degree we again walk in culpable ignorance, in hypocrisy. So let us flee hypocrisy. Let's rightly judge the signs of our times. The Messiah has come. The church is here. You're sitting with it. 
God is moving history to its final culmination. So the time is now. If ever there was a time, it's now to reject a two-faced existence, to reject lives that are split between indulging the world and dabbling as a disciple, and instead to follow Christ with our whole heart and soul and mind. It's time now to do it in humble dependence on the Son of God, transformed by the Spirit of God, led by the Word of God, and partnered in transparent lives with the people of God. So whether you identify as a follower of Christ this morning or not, consider Paul's word to the Corinthians. Let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. And the only way not to fall is to live life strapped to the only upright person, namely Jesus. And then finally, I want to speak again, just very directly to anyone here who isn't a disciple, a follower of Jesus. And I don't care how long you've been in the church, or whether or not you grew up as a a Christian or a so-called Christian. What I mean is, have you trusted in Christ and Him alone for your salvation? Are you living right now as someone who is submitted to Him and who desires to please Him by following Him? Let me emphasize again the strong theme of impending judgment that runs through everything we've looked at this morning. Jesus says He has come to cast fire on the earth. He tells the hypocrites who refuse to accurately understand the day of their salvation that they're walking the road to an eternal prison. He tells the crowd that they too will perish and he paints the picture of a fig tree that's about to be torn out by the roots. That's a strong picture of judgment. But then let me also hold out hope. The strong and sure hope that God is a God who saves. Because before Jesus cast fire on the earth, he comes first to be baptized at the cross. And it's through his baptism into death that you and I find certain life. On the road to the judge, there's yet time to make peace with your accuser, so make peace. In the face of certain and impending death, there is the hope of death-averting repentance. So repent. Turn away from yourself and follow Christ. And then, even as judgment is pronounced, there's yet time to be fertilized with the gospel. You're hearing it this morning. And you're hearing it from the words of Jesus himself. So be fruitful by confessing with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And then finally, let me exhort you that time is short. For three years, which is meant to be a long time, the owner came to his vineyard looking for fruit and now only a year remains. For several thousand or several hundred thousand years, depending on how you understand Genesis, God has looked for fruit among his human creation. Then, a short 2,000 years ago, a short 2,000 years ago, God the Son became incarnate as Jesus Christ, the truly fruitful man, first for salvation and then for judgment. At that precise point in time, which was somewhere around 5 or 6 BC probably when Jesus was born, at that moment in time, God's calendar turned over its last page. We're in the last month. It's December, if you will. Jesus will come back and it will happen very soon. So the message of this, of this crowd encounter from the very beginning, from uh, verse 1 of chapter 12, verses 1 through 7, the message was fear God. 
And we end it this morning with the same message, only a bit enhanced and unpacked for us. Fear God in the person of Jesus Christ as you repent and follow him. Such is the way of a heart that genuinely pursues the kingdom with servant-like readiness. Let me pray, and then we'll go on. Lord Jesus, we're people whose hearts need to be moved. And you know that. You walked among us. Lord, you did it without sin, but you, you partook of everything that we are as failing, limited, struggling human beings. Everything without sin. And then you went to the cross. And you were baptized in the wrath of God. You drank the cup of God's wrath in full so that we could have the opportunity to repent and to make peace with you. Praise God that there's hope. Lord, I pray for anybody here who's hearing this, again, Lord, whether it's the first or the 10,000th time, but hasn't yet followed you, would you move their heart right now to do it? May they respond to you in obedience by faith. And Lord, for those of us who are walking with you, we do it with, with difficulty and with struggling, and we need the gospel time and time again to lay us bare before you and remind us who we are. We're people that you have reached down and made your own. And now we're protected from this judgment. We don't have to drink this wrath. Thank you. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for the privilege of being back, Lord, with people that I love who have, who have raised and shaped me. Lord, I'm truly uh, indebted. We love you and we commit the rest of our day to you. In Jesus' name, amen.